You're listening to Philly Who, the podcast that tells the stories of the doers, thinkers, and performers of Philadelphia. I'm your host, Kevin Schmidlin, and today I'm talking with Bon Koo. Bon is the Assistant Dean for Health and Design at the Sidney Kimmel Medical College at Thomas Jefferson University. There, he's the founder and director of Jeff Design, the first ever med school program that applies design thinking and teaches future doctors to apply human-centered design to healthcare challenges. He's been featured in talks at TEDx, South by Southwest, Mayo Clinic Transform, and in 2016, he received the Healthcare Innovators Award from the Philadelphia Business Journal. On top of all this, Bon actually still practices in the emergency room overnight, three times a week, which, as you'll hear, helps keep him grounded. Being on the front lines, being in the messiness of our healthcare system inspires me to think about what we can do to make this process better. He'll tell us what it was like to turn the century-old med school paradigm on its head, even though he has no training in design. I mean, I was literally going to Google, learning about it. What is design thinking? What is design? And we'll talk about the many health challenges that Philadelphia faces today and how Bond thinks if everyone just helps one person, we can solve them. And I think a lot of people become overwhelmed because if problems are too big, they, they go, well, how am I going to fix an entire problem? We don't have to fix an entire problem. Now, you, a lot of us don't have capacity to do it, but we can help probably one person. All this and more about how Bon Koo is using design thinking to solve Philadelphia's health problems right now on Philly Who. I'm your host, Kevin Schmidlin. Stay tuned. So one of the things I'm already noticing when chatting with the doers, thinkers, and performers of Philadelphia is that a lot of the inspiration for the work that these leaders are doing comes from their upbringing. And as you can guess, Bon Koo is no exception. He's the child of two Korean immigrants, and while growing up, his family hopped around from Chicago to Houston to New Jersey, and all the while, his parents worked some pretty tough jobs, barely banking enough to get by. Eventually, they would open a restaurant in Newark, New Jersey, where it was time for Bon to chip in. I was forced to. Yeah. During, during, during summer times, I, I, the kitchen was downstairs, super hot. It was probably, you know, with all the, the ovens going on, but I think it was about like 80 degrees. I just remember sweating all the time. Yeah. There was a lot of um, undocumented workers uh, there, typical of many... Um, Korean American establishments. Um, a lot of restaurants in the U.S. have uh, many undocumented there. We had uh, workers from El Salvador, from Gu Guatemala, from South America. Yeah. So that's where I kind of cut my teeth and, and really just saw uh, what uh, immigrants went through, you know, both my family and those who worked um, for my family in Newark, New Jersey. Yeah. So what sort of expectations did your parents have for you when, you know, when they came here to America? Well, they guilted me to become a doctor. Oh, right? yeah. So, if, you know, a lot of Korean parents, their dream is to come to the U.S. and send their kid to Ivy League school and have their kid go and become a f physician. Yeah. So they 
from the earliest, my earliest memories were that they wanted me to go to Harvard, which I didn't go to Harvard, and they uh, wanted me to become a physician. I had no, and they said, they said, well, we came here to the U.S. from Korea so that you can do that. So you right? can go to Harvard. <laughs> so I can go to Harvard and become a doctor. It was, <laughs> it was, it was crazy. And, like, and they're like, this is, about, this is the reason why we work in flea markets and gas stations. And... It's a little bit of pressure. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was. It was. The most stressed out in my life, no joke, was when I was about 16 years old and applying to colleges. It was wow. this fear of like, I had to go to a good college and I had to become a physician. Yeah. So at what point did becoming a doctor start to become your plan, your dream? That's a good question. I think I've, uh, I think I always knew that's a career path that was heading on. I tried to resist, uh, you know, that's one of the reasons why I majored in classics in, in college. I, you know, I, I am just terrible at math and science and that's, you know, hard for me to say as an Asian male, right? You, <laughs> you typically think that we're like supposed to be the best at class and, uh, and calculus and, I was I was terrible. I had I was I remember in my calculus class in college. I was like, this is hard, man. So I ended up dropping that class, and but I still had to take a calculus class because it was pre med requirement. So I ended up taking like the calculus for jocks type of yeah, yeah. class, and I think I only ended up getting a B in that. Was there a time that you second guessed being pre med? You know, while looking at these science courses and saying, hey, this isn't for me. Like maybe I shouldn't be going in this direction. Did that thought occur to you? Oh, I, I always second guess. I mean, I, yeah, yeah I because um, I sucked at them. <laughs> it wasn't like I looked at my classmates and they were gunners. And they were pre-med gunners and getting A's in these classes. I'm like, man, I just got a C in physics. Like, this is not good. Um, I actually had to take another year of college. Um, so I ended up going to uh, college for about five years and just because I, you know, I rocked my classics courses in ancient Greek and Latin and translating Homer and the Iliad and Odyssey, but my science GPA was so low. So I, what I did was take another year and took like eight science classes oh, to wow. boost it up. Bring it up. Yeah. And med school was, med school was tough too. Those first two years were, were like kind of taking those undergraduate classes, those pre-med classes at Penn. I was like, this is hard, man. And this is kind of boring too. So you went straight to, straight to med school, got your medical degree. Then what? Did you go straight into like some sort of residency or? Yeah, I, then from, so it's a four years of medical school. Then I went to residency. I did my residency training in emergency medicine in, in Queens, New York. Um, and part of my training was in the Bronx as well. So that was fun to live in New York and see what healthcare looks like there. And yeah. it's, a, it's a great, great place to train. Was that your first exposure to emergency medicine? Yes. It, I mean, I did uh, emergency medicine rotations at my hospital at Penn State, but that's in the middle of Pennsylvania in more of a suburban rural setting. But Different feel. You know, going into uh, the, the largest city in, in the Queens and in the Bronx was, right. that was, that was an eye-opener. I saw things that I did not see. Yeah. What surprised you about that? Uh, the, the amount of violence, uh, the... Um, the amount of gun violence, especially, and how how different populations were affected by trauma, right? The almost all of the uh, people, patients who were shot were young black men. Mm. And that was my experience working in a trauma center in the Bronx 
And then I did my fellowship at um, the Hospital University of Pennsylvania here in Philly and seeing that as well. Uh, I could thing. probably, yeah, I could probably count on one hand the number of uh, white men being shot, but it, it was, it was this, um, the violence was happening in uh, young black men in these major cities. And it had a, it, it was, it was, I'm like, and then sometimes, you know, after a weekend, you know, for, you know, usually a lot of, um, trauma centers you know a lot a lot of the uh gunshot victims come in on a friday saturday night and then you know after a weekend i'm like wow i can't believe there were like three young black men shot in our city and it barely makes the news and so how are you how are you processing this i mean is this affecting you know how you're looking at your career what you're doing like what's going through your head at this time when your your eyes are open to this it it, it seemed to me that patients from certain specific geographic locations in, in in the cities that I worked in just had worse health outcomes. They were uh, more likely to end up being uh, victims of violence. Uh, they ended up suffering more from complications of diseases. And there's, um, and you know, I, I, I love working in the emergency room because it's a real you get a sense of the vital signs of communities yeah. and you, you understand what problems are plaguing communities, whether it's uh, the opioid epidemic or gun violence or homelessness. And you end up seeing these problems. Uh, they, they show up literally at, at your doorstep in the, in the emergency room. And, and it, I was, I felt very frustrated. I was like, this is this sucks right yeah. and there's I, I am just treating i'm just treating complications of diseases uh there are po populations uh predominantly in lower socioeconomic areas that are that are just suffering in, right. in, in our cities and there seems to be little recognition for for these um populations and like how we can go about trying to uh, help out these populations yeah so i think you touched on something there that I think about a lot. So there are such, such big health and wellness problems just right in our backyard, right in the city. I mean, a lot of people, folks who are in more gentrified areas, they don't see it. You know, it's, it's very easy to hide from it. But in the emergency room, you're in a place where, like you said, it's at your doorstep every day. There's no hiding from it. You're there, you know, dealing with the backlash of these things. So, is that what inspired you to take a step back and go study public policy because it was just so in your face? I, I think that and, you know, just growing up in uh, some of these neighborhoods, right? And, you know, working in Newark, New Jersey, growing up in uh, Chicago and Houston and doing part of my training in New York City and, and being constantly exposed to the problems facing those living in poverty, uh, seeing them having... Um, of poor health outcomes, kind of my, my, my own background growing up poor. And I, I remember going to, I used to skateboard a lot growing up and I had a, uh, my left knee was hurting me and I could see knee pain from skateboarding. And my doctor took me, I mean, my d dad took me to an orthopedic doctor and he took x-ray of my knee and said, I have this thing called Oshkosh slaughters, which is like a knot. It's, you know, just basically part of your bone is growing too fast and it, it resolves. And then I remember the bill, I think was like hundreds of dollars. And I was thinking, man, that's like probably like the entire paycheck for the week. And it, I felt guilty as a, I think it was in, in the eighth grade thinking that 
man, I just cost my parents like their entire paycheck for the week. And, and I mean, no, no young kid should feel guilty about going to see a doctor for a medical issue. And that I think was part of my inspiration of, you know, working with communities that, uh, who don't have insurance, who can't access healthcare. Uh, and they kind of, it kind of made me angry too. I was, uh, I felt angry that my parents are being charged so much money and they, and, but you know, the doctor didn't, didn't have any idea that, you know, he, he, he couldn't, uh, we couldn't afford that. And right. I remember my dad, like, uh, putting out cash, like from his pocket, like right. $20 bills to pay, pay, pay wow, for it. Just uh, right there. Yeah. Just out of pocket. Cause wow. we were, we were uninsured. Yeah, so I, I ended up uh, after my fellowship. I ended up taking my my f- first academic job at J- at Jefferson, and and working in a busy city emergency room. And what was frustrating to me is seeing some of the same problems come over and over again, and seeing, um, especially with the urban homeless population in in Philadelphia. And there's this kind of mentality in emergency medicine: you treat them and treat them. And, you know, we're just trying to, like, see patients as quickly as possible, get them out the door, right? And and the system's just, it's so messed up. It's so dysfunctional. Like, we're trying to optimize our conditions in a dysfunctional, broken system. And I, I was getting burned out. I was getting emotionally, spiritually, physically exhausted. I was, I was, I felt like I was dehumanizing my patients that I just kind of, like, I was just churning and burning, right? Just seeing as many patients as possible, um, and and then I was th- I was thinking this is not why I went into medicine. I mean, I I lacked empathy, and and I thought I was like I I, I need to take some time off. Um, so I went back into my academic life, and a, f- a few years later, I had the opportunity to. Uh, meet with the dean of our medical school, Dr. Mark Tikachinsky, and started learning more about his vision to redesign medical education. You know, he talked about this um, thing called the Flexner Report, which uh, was published in 1910, and that was a groundbreaking report on how to redesign medical education. I was like, wow, man, medical school has... That was like the last major redesign about a hundred years ago. Nineteen like, yeah. ten, yeah, nineteen ten. He was like, he's like, yeah, we we have to change things. Um, and he provided me an opportunity to uh, start a design thinking program. Uh, it was originally a co curricular program about four years ago, and I was like, sure, <laughs> let's, yeah. let's 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 do this. Let's go and. Uh, then kind of, it's been a whirlwind. It's been nonstop since then. So, okay. What's, what's step one? You've just been given the reins to this thing. How do you even start turning the medical education on its head? The hard, hardest part about starting a design curriculum for medical school is that there was nothing out there, right? No one was doing this. So right, you're, you're starting from scratch. I'm starting from scratch. I mean, I was literally going to Google, learning about it. What is design thinking? <laughs> what is design thinking? What is design? Like, um, cold calling people from all over the country. And this le- led me to uh, a guy named uh, David Janko, who's an instructor at the design school at Stanford called the D School. David uh, has an interesting background. He actually completed medical school 
and now teaches design thinking at at the D school at at Stanford. So I found just literally found him through Google and emailed him and said, "Hey, I'm starting this program. I'd love for you to come and do a a one day intensive introductory introduction to design thinking to our first cohort of medical students who are starting with me." And, and then he said, "Sure, I'll, I'll do it." And he he came to Philadelphia and. And they've been extremely helpful. That community there of uh, designers and really informing a lot of how we apply and te- contextualize design in healthcare. So I've literally been learning on the job. And so what we do is we bring in designers to co-teach with us. And so I'm always um, copying borrowing stealing from people who are much smarter than than myself yeah so was there a moment where you took a look at the cool design work you guys were doing and thought holy crap we were really onto something here but three years ago we we work with second year medical students and we our challenge was like hey let's look at what's going on in the hospitals and the clinics let's figure out if we could develop a new product to help patients and and they identify the problem of patients unable to sleep at night in the hospital, right? You get constant disruptions, light disruptions, you know, the overhead lights keep on turning on, the sound disruptions. So they wanted to tackle the problem of light. They, that was their inspiration. And we had initial whiteboarding sessions. They developed an initial prototype, filed for a patent, and they Two years later, they finish a clinical trial in, in the hospital where they found that with their smarter lighting system that they were able to reduce, I think, increase sleep by about 30 minutes. And that's a lot because, you know, there's some major companies and their studies have shown they can increase sleep by 45 minutes. So uh, and this was uh, statistically significant. So it's amazing that these guys who don't have a product design background or a medical device background by applying a human-centered design process are able to take something that is an idea to an actual product. And they did it, you know, they started a company, um, worked in, uh, got into a hardware accelerator at NextFab in Philadelphia and and able to and raise, raise money as well. So it's... Yeah. I would have never thought. They would have never thought that too. They're like, yeah. they're like, I would, I would have never guessed that in medical school I would start a uh, med tech startup company. Yeah, <laughs> right. right and, about lighting. <laughs> yeah, and they're still going to red. And what, what's great is that they are going to residency, and they're going to be. You know, they didn't leave medical school, so I, I don't want our medical students to go out and and leave medicine. I, I think, I think we need minds that are. Uh, we need these creative minds to stay in, in medicine and to and to think about how how to apply creativity, how to apply design to to make the experiences better, both for patients and clinicians, provide more value uh, in in a system that is um, provide does not provide that much value for the amount of money that's invested. Right. So, like your students that you just mentioned. In addition to teaching, in, in addition to you know directing this program, you still practice emergency medicine. I I, I do. I uh, I usually work overnight shifts in the emergency department, and that's one of my favorite parts of the week. 
uh, because it keeps me grounded. Yeah, is that, I, that's why I, it's important to you? If you're not working in the healthcare system, it's easy to forget how frustrating it is. It's a hard job, especially when I'm, it's, I remember a month ago, it was a really busy night. There was probably a five hour wait. Uh, there was about 25 patients boarding in the emergency department. Patients were getting frustrated, staff was getting frustrated, and a patient who had a CAT scan of their head, it's about, it's, I think it's about two o'clock in the morning, uh, and he said, he was you know getting really frustrated with his weight you know, coming up to our staff and um and he says and before he got discharged he was like oh well, i want a copy of my um i want a copy of my cat scan and uh, what you guys did to me and i'm thinking dude <laughs> we're, we're trying to hustle we just got a trauma coming in i was like it's not gonna be possible like i can't i don't have this digital copy to give to you you just have to come back to medical records and get it and he was getting frustrated because he was like why can't I get it? And it was a total reasonable question to ask, right? Yeah, but we we're just like, we we're like, man, there's there's 20 other patients waiting to be seen. I don't have time for this. And not doing clinical work wouldn't expose me to this problem, right? Of course. Why shouldn't he? He has every right to to get access to the imaging that we just did on him, right? And and these problems wouldn't come up if if I did not work. Uh, in, in, in the hospital, right? And and when people talk about the problems with interoperability and um, and how we still use fax machines, it's real to me because I'm faxing stuff. My <laughs> residents are faxing stuff in the middle of the night to get records from another hospital. And yeah. I'm like, this is so frustrating, right? They're like, wow. they're like, you know, on the phone with the other hospital, like, hey, and, you know, we have to get consent from the patient. They're like, what's your fax number? And my residents ask me, what's our fax number? It's like, I don't know where a fax number is. I mean, go <laughs> to we, the fax machine and figure yeah. out, right? And so, but but like being on the front lines, being in the mess, the messiness of our healthcare system inspires me to think about how design, I mean, one, one of the great things about design, it can simplify the complicated. And and to think about what we can do to, to um, make this process better, right? So, yeah, so I I, I, I love it. And I, I, I love uh, working as a clinician. It's uh, unfortunately leads to a lot of sleepless nights, literally. How has the city of Philadelphia, whether the community or the actual entity itself, responded to your mission to bring design back into healthcare? Uh, you know, what, what I mentioned before, working in the emergency room gives you a sense of what we call the vital signs of communities. Right. And Philly's pulse. Yes, exactly. And if, if you want to know how healthy your city is, go to your local emergency room and you will see all the problems with that. Um, you know, one of those problems is the opioid epidemic, right? And, you know, for years we've been seeing people coming in, overdosing on heroin, young people uh, coming into our emergency departments where it's, it's a weird thing, man, to be working in the ER than seeing like, there are four people that are sedated. We have them on monitors. We had to give them naloxone to resuscitate them. And they're all in our emergency department. And like something is going on in, in, in the city when, when you see that on, on the front lines. And, and the response, I think, is, to, you know, there's two ways to respond to that. You could become very cynical. Um, you could lack empathy and just dehumanize these patients and go, 
ugh, they're just drug addicts. Sometimes it's difficult to take care of, you know, when they get resuscitated or when they, you know, we reverse the opioids, they, they're angry and they get up and just want to leave immediately. So uh, it's taxing to our staff and the clinicians to take care of them. So I, I could see that response, right? Um, but it's, it's tiring to be cynical and jaded at work. And at the core of design is um, developing empathy. And I think the best definition of design is by a designer, Ellen Lupton, who I'm, I'm, I'm a big fan of. She says, uh, empathy is really understanding the mental state of others. And this inspired me to go out into the community of Kensington, which is uh, unfortunately has been associated with the epicenter of the opioid crisis. And, and walking through that community, I know it would encourage people to do that. And it's three miles away from a hospital. It is a different world. There's um, this tent encampment right under overpass that I was walking through. And I saw there are young people who are there living in this encampment, uh, addicted to heroin. And this image of this kid who's probably in middle, middle school, who's in a uniform, walking through that encampment on his way home from school. And I'm trying to think, you know, what what's the mental state of that kid who every day he sees that? Or, or you know, what it's like to be one of those people living in that encampment. And, you know, we I just recently went to McPherson Square Park in Kensington. Uh, that's one of the sites that we were probably going to be working at um, this summer. And when I was there, within an hour, I saw someone getting arrested by the police and then someone who had overdose who was lying on the sidewalk. And then there's kids playing in the playground while all this is happening. And and in that park, there's a police trailer there because there's been so many people coming to that park and using heroin and overdosing that that they, it needs to be const, have constant police surveillance. But what what's the image that it feels, this is a civic space, it's a beautiful park, a beautiful library right there, and then you go in and then it's like, this feels like a police state. Having a big mobile police trailer always there and what message is that sending to the residents in that community? And the librarians in, in this park have gained a national reputation for learning how to give naloxone to people who have overdosed in their library or in that park is so many people uh we're, we're doing that they're like well we need to do this because and they're literally saving lives um so and but doing this helps me to humanize patients and the communities where they come from it's so easy for us to write this off because if we don't live in that community if not or if we're not around people like that you don't see it so it's like out of sight out of mind you know part of this mess that we're in we all have a stake in it so i think you know you mentioned how easy it is to hide from these problems i think one of the reasons that people do is because it, it can be so discouraging and overwhelming. Like, you know, the problem such as this. Oh, it's so, so overwhelming. How do you keep from getting overwhelmed? So, you know, it's one thing to keep from being jaded, but like, you know, to, to think that I'm one person, you know, how can I, how can I make a difference on such a huge fundamental ingrained problem? 
it's easy to say that the problem's so big and, and that what could what could we actually do about it, right? And just go, I, it's, it's too big of a problem, right? But I like to focus on a small sample size, like a sample size of one, focus on individuals to focus on maybe a neighborhood and and take a like a bite-sized chunk of, of of the problem we uh we you know a few years ago we had a chance to work with a teenager who uh was shot uh he's paralyzed he was standing on his friend's porch and we brought him into one of our design classes that we're having with our medical students and you know we were co-creating uh, adaptive devices to help Lurique um, gain the ability to write or play Nintendo. That process for us ended up us learning to develop empathy for Larique, you know, understanding his needs. Um, and, you know, we went to Larique's house and my colleague Rob Pugliese uh, found that he had this dilapidated wooden porch and he was, he's, he's wheelchair bound. And it, it takes two people for him to get from his front door onto the sidewalk. Oh, they didn't have a ramp. He had a ramp, but it was like, it was it was a worse shape ramp. I mean, this really? thing it was bare. I mean, it it was treacherous, and and it, it's it's a process. I mean, it takes two people for to get get him down from from his front doorstep to the sidewalk, and there was this loophole in the state insurance coverage where that prevented him from getting a ramp. We um, we had an opportunity to talk to our, our mayor, Mayor Jim Kenny, about Ulrich's situation, and my uh, and, and I, I remember we were down in Austin when uh, he was at South by Southwest, and I look out of the corner of my eye, my my buddy Rob Pugliese was was talking to the mayor and talking about Ulrich and the situation of ramp. I'm like, dude, what are you doing, man? I can't believe you're talking to the mayor about yeah. this. And then Mayor Kenny says, "It was like, send me an email. We'll take care of it." I'm like, "All right, you know, I like, I love Mayor Jim Kenny, but I'm like, he's a busy dude. There's right? a lot going like, on. He's managing a city. Yeah. Like, this is one problem for one person in in our in our city." A month later, Larry got a motorized wheelchair ramp, brand new. Wow! No and way. That and that, that's inspiring, right? And yeah, you could be cynical and say, "Hey." Oh yeah, you just help one person. I'm like, well, yeah. I mean, I don't care if I could help one person. I mean that that, but that's a huge impact in Larique's life. Yeah, and and that cascades. Yeah, you know, you you can break the challenge down into smaller chunks like that that are actually approachable and manageable. Yeah, anybody can make a huge difference. Yeah, yeah, and um, and that and and to us that was inspiring because it. If we didn't develop empathy for Larique, if we didn't understand his problems, we would have never connected the dots. And so, and so, that's on an individual basis. But then, you know, we're we're going to be doing some uh, a program called CoLab Philadelphia, where we're reaching out to the neighborhood of of Kensington, and and I, and I think a lot of people become overwhelmed because. If problems are too big, they, they go, well, how am I going to fix an entire problem? We don't have to fix an entire problem, right? A lot of us don't have capacity to do it, but we can help probably one person or we could help maybe one block. Um, and, you know, part of what I love about the design process, it's it helps us to think about how to take on these, like what we call like wicked problems. These problems are very complex with no clear solution. But by applying a process of empathy and of rapid prototyping, of testing and iteration, 
helps us to think about, okay, well, we can take one aspect of this problem and, and, and work on it. Right. So if you could send a text message to every, that would be read by every Philadelphian, what would it say? I would maybe start a text chain and go text one person and ask them, one person that you know, and ask them, how can I help you? And, one, and have that person be a person that you normally wouldn't interact with. Because I, I think that's part of empathy of, of, I think would unearth a lot of things, right? And, you know, what's meaningful in our lives is when we help out those near us and, and especially those who are different than us. I think it would help break down um, barriers. And um, yeah, I think if, if every Philadelphian did that, I think that would, it would, have a tremendous impact upon our upon our communities and i like the idea of just one person right yeah we could do something for one person yeah uh, we don't need to do something for the entire city we don't need to do something for our entire neighborhood but all of us probably have time to help out one person in need yeah um if you could send a message to yourself in the past at any point whether it's in med school in the kitchen, you know, in, in New Jersey, or even recently when you're starting Jeff Design, would you, and if so, what would you say? I, I think I would probably say, do what fears you the most. Do what fears you the most. Yeah, yeah, because it's... Why? I, I think fear just drives so many of us, like in, incapacitates us. And that's something I wish I've done more in my life and not let fear dictate you. Um, and some of my best opportunities in life have, have, have been what I've done what was scary. And it's so easy to not do that, to be comfortable, to, to have a comfortable life, right? It's, uh, and you know, I, I can't think of how many things I've done from like making a career change, right? Starting a design program, medical school, that was scary. I, I left, I could have had a comfortable academic life in medicine and doing what I normally do. It was because it could have failed and I could have lost my comfortable seat in my academic job. Um, and uh, doing, I've, you know, I grew up shy because I was always a new kid and I did not like public speaking and I just forced myself to do it and it was very anxiety provoking didn't think I was good at it and and now I freaking speak all the time yeah, right? yeah. I, I, I enjoy it yeah and it was a but it was a scary thing to do and when, when you're shy and don't think don't think that uh, you're going to do a, a good job so I, I think fear stifles us and um, and sometimes I, I wish I would have just taken on things in life, but that I didn't because I thought it was just too scary and uh, I had too much anxiety about it. For more on Bon, you can head to podphillyhoo.com forward slash Bonku. That's B-O-N-K-U. If you like the show, be sure to subscribe and rate it on iTunes. And if you have ideas for anybody who would be a great guest on the show, hit up Twitter and Instagram at PodPhillyWho and let us know. Cover art by Lauren Carhart, music by Lee Rosevere. Special thanks to Bon Koo for being a guest. 
For Pod Philly Who, I'm Kevin Schmidlin. See you next week. <laughs>